Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like newborn babies that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by virtue and glory, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word together this morning, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. When we stop to think about it, and we realize that your word has been preserved for the last at least 3,000 years. Maybe some parts of it were composed even before that, uh, coming together in the writing of Moses around 1500, 1400 B.C., and that it has been preserved and it has been uh, given to us for the purpose of teaching us about reality, that there is an objective reality, that it is that reality which you created and that you have the right as the creator God to define reality and to determine what the standards of your creatures are because you have created a universe that initially reflected your righteousness and your justice, but it's been corrupted by sin. And, Father, there's much about this that we need to understand, and we need to understand how this has played itself out in history because that will challenge us in the way we reflect on our own thinking and and our own lives and values. And we pray that as we go through the material this morning that it will enlighten us as to what has transpired around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this morning what I want to do is develop an application from what we've been studying in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. And the thing that I want us to remember as we look at this is what the basic structure of this passage is. It begins with a exhortation, a command that we are not to walk, that is, not to live our lives, not to think, not to act, not to uh, conduct our relationships like the rest of the Gentiles. There's supposed to be a demarcation, and that is described in terms of a fundamental problem, which has to do with the reality of the impact of sin that is, original sin, a concept, a doctrine that is not at all popular today. And that is that because of the entrance of sin into the human race, that we are separated from and alienated from the life of God. And this has had consequences in our abilities to understand and comprehend truth. And that that in turn has consequences 
which are described in verse uh, 19 as having given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Basically, it's a description of our world today, not much different from the world of the Apostle Paul in roughly 60 A.D., a world that was uh, immoral, had uh, no sense of eternal absolutes, but it was a world that was beginning to be transformed by the impact of Christianity. And so what I want to look at coming out of this is sort of a transitional message from these uh, five verses to what comes after it, actually starting in verse 22 down through verse 33 of chapter 5, which is a focus on the spiritual life because it is the spiritual life, the transformation of Christians in terms, first of all, in terms of thinking. Now, we live in a world today where they would, where most churches would never say that. It's a transformation based on emotion. And even if they don't say that, they exhibit it by their methodology, which is a focus on ha- producing a certain kind of emotion that is thought to be worshipful. We have to understand where that came from, and that means we have to take a look at history. So what I want to do today is you're going to get a history lesson. I'm going to try to cover in a very broad sense the history of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. So buckle your seatbelts. You're in for a bumpy ride. It's the rise and fall of Christianity's impact on Western civilization. It rose, developed a phenomenal impact over approximately 1,600 years. See, it's not something that happens quickly, either in history or in our lives. It is slow. It's incremental. It takes time to overcome the horrors of carnality and the depravity of the human mind. And then we need to understand what has happened since 1600. Many of you and I have looked around, we read the paper, we hear the news, and we think, what in the world has happened? Did, did I somehow, you know, step through the looking glass and go down the rabbit hole and living in some alternative reality? And now I look around and people are, are basically calling good things evil and evil things good. And this isn't just a few people. This isn't just some intellectual elite. That was maybe 75 years ago. Now it's the people on the street. It's everybody. What has happened? How did we get to this point? And I think we need to understand how we got to this point for two basic reasons. Number one, if we're going to have any kind of an impact on reversing this, then we have to understand how it happened. Because the reason it happened, the reasons it happened are all spiritual. They had consequences in intellectual activity and theories and philosophies that are being played out in nearly every home in America today. 
So we have to understand what the problem was, how it developed, and what its impact was. And secondly, coming to grips with that helps us to understand how we have internalized a lot of that human viewpoint thinking, a lot of that evil thinking, devil's thinking, worldly thinking, whatever we want to call it. Uh, we've internalized it because that's what happens when you grow up with, within a culture, and none of us escapes that. Some of us have had better opportunities to get rid of a lot of it than others simply because we were born in a solid Christian home and we were taught the word from the time we got out of diapers. That's my case. And so a lot was done to circumvent the influence of the culture around as as I grew up. But even that, you know, my parents were fallen uh, fallen sinners, and they were influenced by the worldview of their generation just as much as anyone else, and so they have their problems and their issues, and this is always the case, so we need to look at this. And uh, we're going to see how Christianity's fall, uh, the impact of that, okay? So just a structure here to give us a framework. Paul gives the command in verse 17. It's within a series of commands on how the believer is to walk. Walking is a metaphor for how a person conducts their life, their way of life, their way of thinking primarily as a man thinketh in his soul, so is he. You know, it all starts in, in our mind between our ears. Spiritual warfare is not something the charismatics think it is, which is going out and doing battle with Satan and taking dominion in the name of Jesus and all the other nonsense they have, which is an, just another form of worldliness encapsulated within the clothing of the vocabulary of Christianity. Spiritual warfare is what goes on between your ears, whether you focus on the truth or whether you focus on the lie. It's basically it. It's pretty simple. And so there's a contrast here. We're not to walk like the rest of the Gentiles do. In other words, we're not supposed to think. We're not supposed to make decisions. We're not supposed to act like the unbelieving world acts around us. Well, what that tells us, as I've said many times, is if you don't know the characteristics of the world around you, then you won't be able to spot it when it's in your head. So we need to understand that, and that the basic problem of man is the consequence of sin in its effect on our thinking, because man is in rebellion against God. Our understanding's been darkened. We're alienated from the life of God, all of which is summarized in the phrase futility of the mind. And the result of that is that have given themselves over to basically lawlessness, antinomianism, uh, lasciviousness, all of this, to work all uncleanness with greediness. This just summarizes the way of the fallen world in trying to make life work apart from God. And then the critical part here, but that means there's a difference, but you have not learned Christ this way. None of us learned the Bible, learned Christ, learned the doctrine from the scriptures that way so that there should not be that compromise between what Christ says and what the world pressures us into. 
So let's review these commands because we're in the walking section of Ephesians, starting in Ephesians 4.1, going down to the uh, end of Ephesians 5.9, is all describing how Christians are to conduct their lives. Now, that's not legalism. That is God saying, I'm the father, you're the kid, and we have certain rules in the father's household, and you have to follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, there are going to be consequences. Now, when you grow up in a home or you allow your kids to grow up in a home, when there are consequences for misbehavior, then you're teaching them that it's okay to misbehave against God as well because there are no consequences. And this has had the devastating consequences that we witness in our world around us with the rise of criminality and immorality and the complete rejection of standards, this whole postmodern relativism thing. Ephesians 4, 17 to 18a says that it's in this walk, which is uh, related to our, the high position of our calling in Christ, is to be in contrast to the way the Gentiles around us think and decide and live. I say decide because decisions are based on values and priorities. And so that your decisions, your values, your priorities are going to be different. You're going to look at things differently. Then we see in Ephesians 5.2 that we are to walk in love, that, that the love of Christ, the love demonstrated on the cross, as Jesus gave the great commandment for the church in John chapter 13, verses 33 and 34, he said, this new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you. So we are to love one another. This is not an emotional love. This is a mental attitude love. We have a culture that as a result of worldview shifts in the last 200 years cannot think about love in terms of an objective mental attitude separated from emotions. But that's what love is. That's the love of God for us. So we are to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. And then in verse 8, Paul writes again about love for you. I mean, again about walking for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Notice the contrast. The Gentiles are walking in darkness. Their mind, their understanding has been darkened. And now we are positionally light in the Lord, and we are to walk as children of light. The problem is a lot of believers are walking in darkness because they don't understand the, the contrast. They, they're never taught. They don't understand how to think about what's going on around them. And the sad thing is, is that a part of the movements in the last 200 years against Christianity to destroy the impact of Christianity is to destroy the education of people. Because if you're not educated very well, you can't think about the Bible. You can't read the Bible. You can't understand the Bible. And you can't think your way through a lot of things. And this is extremely sad. It's very difficult when you go as a missionary from our culture to, let's say, India or Africa or Southeast Asia or even Ukraine or Russia and try to talk about biblical things and realize, number one, 
they don't have the theological vocabulary, even from Scripture, to understand what you're talking about. Because in English, in English-speaking countries, going back to the Protestant Reformation and even before, we live in a world that has been so impacted by the Bible, and the Bible has so impacted literature that much of what we read especially if you're probably over 40. Much of what you read in schools used many different idioms that had their source in the King James Bible. And if you don't understand the Bible, and you can't understand those idioms. And so if you don't have that kind of a heritage, it's very difficult. You really have to reduce things to basics and build that. I remember when uh, Jim Myers first went over to, and, and, and several others, because I went there and taught for three weeks in February of 94, or January of 94, and how difficult it was working with translators because you had to teach the translators theology, and you had to teach them the Bible, and you had to teach them what all these words meant. In 2000, when... George Meisinger and I went over to Kazakhstan and to Almaty for a pastor's conference. Um, half the room, the room was longer than this room, a little bit narrower. It had one small 15,000 BTU window unit in the back, external temperature outside 112, internal temperature 98. And we had about, and the room was packed with people. And this half of the room spoke Kazakh and no Russian or very little Russian. This half of the room spoke Russian and very little Kazakh. So I had a Kazakh, uh, I mean, I had a Russian translator here and a Kazakh translator there. The fun day was when the Kazakh translator, who was really good, she spoke, she was fluent in five languages, but she was the pastor's wife and she had to take some of the students down to deal with visa issues and things like that. So I, the best they could come up with was a student who could speak Kazakh and Russian but no English. So whatever I said was translated into Russian, and you weren't really sure that how accurate that was because we had to fire that guy and, and bring Margaret in from Kiev so that we could straighten things out. Uh, so he's translating into Russian, and then this guy over here is translating from his Russian into Kazakh. I have no idea what they got out of anything. And the bad thing was that a Kazakh, the Kazakh Bibles only had a New Testament, and I'm dealing with spiritual warfare, and I'm back in Isaiah and Ezekiel and other Old Testament passages, and so the Kazakh people never even read the Old Testament or know anything about it. Welcome to the mission field. And that's your neighborhood now. Especially here in Houston, we have, what, 170-something languages spoken in HISD. We are the most ethnically diverse city. We don't have to go on the mission field. We're living, the mission field has come to us. Okay, so that I'm getting off my subject. But what we see is the Gentile world that has no frame of reference for understanding truth. And we are light to them. And then in 5.15, see then, then Paul says that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. 
So that's how our life is supposed to be. It is a contrast from the kids you grew up with in school, the kids you were in sorority or fraternities with in college, uh, those that you work with. Uh, it is th- There's something different about you. Okay, and in some times that's going to cause problems, and other times it's not. We have to be reminded that we're in a warfare. We are soldiers of the cross, as the hymn says. And we're in a warfare, and we have three enemies. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh is our sin nature. That's the internal enemy. The devil is the enemy of God, and he is constantly working through various systems of thought to oppose God and to destroy whatever God is doing. And that's what we're talking about. We have to keep this in mind. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Well, this is not demonic strongholds. That's how charismatics interpret this, if you didn't know. These are strongholds of thought. That's what he's thinking about, casting down arguments. See, that's mental. That's that's thinking, that's logic, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's what's opposing the knowledge of God is some other knowledge. It's all about thinking. This is not about doing battle with demons or this is not about other things that come along that are just as paganized as they can be. We have to bring every what into captivity for Christ, every thought. That means the Christian life is about thinking. It's not about emoting. But we have to learn how to think, not just what to think. It's not just content. It's methodology. I was at lunch yesterday with some um, unsaved Jewish friends, and we got kind of into this topic and just the comprehension of thinking about how you think was getting way beyond the context of lunch, okay? So, but that's what we have to do. All right. So what I want to do is recognize that these arguments, this this high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, all of these thoughts are what make up culture. The culture is what surrounds us. The culture, you have many different cultures that we're all involved in. There's the culture of your home. There's the culture of your business environment where you work. There's the culture of if you have hobbies and you go off and you're uh, with different groups, whether it's uh, bowling or whether it's uh, uh, quilt making or whether it is uh, the NRA or something like that. Every group has a different culture. They have different values. They have different ideas. And then we have everything in our nation as part of Western civilization. So culture involves how we think about things, the way we live, and the way we conduct our lives, our marriages, our families. Uh, it involves government, laws, businesses, business practices, entertainment, singing, music, everything is affected by culture. There's no neutrality. When Adam sinned, everything that is part of human life is affected by sin. There's nothing that I mentioned that is somehow neutral or not uh, not affected by sin and corrupted by sin. 
So that's the first thing we need to remember is what culture is, how we think about things, the values that we choose. Second point we have to recognize as, as background is that culture, that one person has, I've heard other people say this, that culture is downstream from religious beliefs. Now, that's what I describe when those of you who've seen me teach about worldview and we have the iceberg. That's what we're building there, that you have nine-tenths is below the surface. It starts with what we think about God, then how we know, know what we know, and then the values that we have, and then eventually that works itself out on what's above the waterline, and that's politics, law, family life, entertainment, all of those things. But it, it all comes from, the, starts with what we think about God. So culture is always downstream from religious beliefs. Another author I recent, recently read defined it as culture is religion externalized. Culture is religion externalized. It's the outworking of our religious beliefs. So whatever people say they believe may not conform to what they actually think, say, or do. What they actually think, say, or do reveals more about what they, their fundamental core beliefs than anything else. And that's a conflict for believers because when we're operating on the sin nature, what we think, say, or do is coming out of that sin nature. And that is in contrast to what we do believe. So there's a, there's a conflict there for every one of us, which is that problem, the warfare that's inside the Christian life. So the third thing is background is that, we, what, that when we look at what we do as a society and as a culture, we see that what has influenced our views of the individual what makes a person a person, their value? Are they in the image and likeness of God? Or are they just the result of an accidental electrical discharge on a gooey substance? Okay? That's going to make a big difference. How you look at people is going to be determined by these underlying ideas. It's going to affect law, how you view law. Is law based on absolutes? I mean, if you listen to what some of these wacko district attorneys across the country in these various uh, uh, blue states are doing, they're releasing criminals left and right. It's happening here right now with the, the uh, district attorney here uh, in Houston. Uh, they're operating on these ideas. Oh, well, you know, they're really going to do better if they're out in society. Wait a minute. What about the victim? What about the fact that they broke a law and there is supposed to be punishment? That going to prison and to jail is supposed to be punishment? It, you know, this idea of that it is somehow going to reform them comes out of progressive views and evolutionary views of mankind. You know, the, 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 what undergirds the whole penal system of the United States is a absolutely bogus view of of. Mankind, humanity, and what causes crime. It denies sin at the very get-go. So we have problems that have crime and punishment, entertainment, music. We've gone through this. There are many times I've done studies on the relationship of music to culture and to biblical worldview. Uh, Literature, economics, politics, 
all of this has happened and has been a radical revolution the last 150 to 200 years in each of these areas. And in the little bit of time I have left giving this introduction, we're going to try to understand this. I may go over into next week, but you, that wouldn't surprise you at all. Okay. This is a timeline from the beginning of the church age in A.D. 33 up to the present. Across the top, what I'm showing is the dominant worldview in Western civilization through time. The black downward arrows show that's where the pressure's coming from against the church. So when, when Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the world, the world is pressing us. The zeitgeist, the spirit of the age is pressuring us into its mold. And so every generation, every century, several centuries have a worldview that is pressuring us. Okay. And the church is below the blue timeline. You start off with the early church is not a term that is technically used for the New Testament church. It's for the post-apostolic church from about 100 to uh, roughly 1,200 is how I've set it up here to cover the early church and the early medieval church. Uh, Early church would be 100 to 600, and early medieval church would be 600 to 1,200. And during that time period, the the thinking of the world was dominated by Neoplatonism. Now, you want to know what that is, so we have to have some definitions. I'm not going to have a show of hands as to how many of you were taught anything about Platonism and Neoplatonism in high school, but I was. And I still think that's the way it is. I know it's different now, but that's the way it was when I grew up. So Platonism is the philosophy of a a Greek philosopher by the name of Plato. He was from Athens. His dates were 427 to 347 B.C. What's going on in the Bible during that time? This is after the return of the Jews to the land, just putting it in context. So we're in the period of the the restoration of, of, uh, of the Jewish state. He's the pupil of Socrates. Plato was convinced that there were absolute standards of virtue and truth, but he didn't know where, they, where he got them. You know, he doesn't really have a foundation other than his own thinking. That's why eventually Rome is going to collapse. So he, he knows that absolute standards of virtue and truth existed and that goodness comes from their view, the Greek view of wisdom, which has to do with intellectual philosophical thinking not the skillful living of the spiritual life, which is how the the Jews use the word wisdom. And that evil came from ignorance and folly. Okay, that's a definition in the dictionary of theological terms. I'm not going to try to invent all these definitions on my own. So his system, that's Plato's system, is basically one of idealism or rationalism. That's really the terminology you have to get. He's saying that what's real in front of us, what we see, taste, touch, hear, feel, uh, I've repeated myself, hear, see, taste, touch, all of that is not real. Okay? The ultimate reality is what's in the realm of the ideal. 
so that if you think of a, if you see a triangle, it's not perfect. Nothing in this world is perfect, so there's got to be a perfect triangle somewhere. That's the realm of perfection. That's the ideal world. So anything that's physical or material is somehow less than ideal. So in his view, anything material is corrupted. Therefore, marriage is somehow corrupted because that's physical. It's based on a, a sexual intimacy, and that's got to be somehow evil. So this, this works itself out in all kinds of different ways. But it's, it, it's ultimately it's the realm of the spirit, the realm of the ideal is, um, is where ultimate reality is. And Platonism has a significant effect upon the thinking of the philosophers and theologians in the early part of the church, in the early three or four hundreds. And it's mostly through what came back as Neoplatonism, which describes a philosophical school that has its heyday. This, it starts around 204, 270, the third century. But, and this says lasts until the sixth century. And I'm quoting from, um, the, the pocket dictionary of church history. I would disagree with that. The influence of Platonism is not overthrown in in Christianity as a as an external influence until you shift to Aristotle in about the 13th century, the 1200s. And so, Plato is rationalism, and when you shift to Aristotelianism, you shift to empiricism. That that you don't have this ideal world. We come to know truth from what we hear what we see, what we taste, what we smell, all of this, the senses, what, what we analyze. This is the, the, there's nothing wrong with empiricism or rationalism, but it has to be under the authority of God. It, it can't be autonomous. It can't function independently of divine revelation, but in their view, they don't have any divine revelation. And so it's the influence of and recovery of Aristotelian philosophy and it's made most popular in Western civilization by Thomas Aquinas. And so he opens the door. He doesn't step through it. problem I have with some people like Francis Schaeffer, he, he says what I just said, but people get the idea that, that he puts more weight on Aquinas' shoulders. And I've got a master's degree in Thomistic philosophy, so I can speak with a measure of in, informed knowledge on the topic. But he opens the door to raising what we know apart from revelation to the same level as revelation. And the issue in the Bible is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. It is not the fear of the Lord plus your experience or plus your independent reasoning ability. It's the scripture is the ultimate authority. Now, you have people throughout this time period who are really working and struggling to make the Bible the ultimate authority, and in many areas they did. But there's always this pressure and this influence from the philosophical systems around. So back to our chart here. What we see in these first 1,600 years is the incremental ascendancy of Christian thought. It doesn't happen overnight. It took... It took from the death of the last apostle in 95 until 325, so roughly 225 years, 
for the church to come to a clear, solid statement explaining the relationship of Jesus Christ to the Father in terms of the Trinity. And that was done at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Now, you've heard about the Trinity. If you're a believer like me, and, and I've heard about the Trinity since I was, since before I was saved, then to not tend to think that this is a difficult concept to grasp is far from my understanding. It's familiar to me in, in many, many ways. But that was only because these guys really sweated it out mentally to try to figure out how to articulate and explain what the Bible is teaching because the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. It was coined by a theologian in the uh, 3rd century by the name of Tertullian in the 2nd century, beginning of the 3rd century. So that means that when you think of the Trinity... And your definition of the Trinity, you can think about the Trinity in a way that the Apostle Paul can't think about the Trinity because he didn't have a vocabulary word for it. Now, that blows a lot of people's minds. Hypostatic union. A lot of you have heard that your whole life. You understand what that means. That's the union of the deity and the humanity of, of, of Christ in one person. One person with two natures, 100% humanity and 100% deity. And that to you, you've heard this so much all your life. I remember the first time I honed in on that, I was 14 years old. Some other kids from Baraka were sitting in the bus going to camp, and I'll start talking about the hypostatic union, and I went, what? But I've been thinking about that ever since. But to most people, they don't have a clue. Paul did not have that terminology. So with that terminology, you can think more clearly about that than he could. It's not that he didn't hold to that. It's that it, there's not a vocabulary word for it. So he believed what that says. Okay, so you have this incremental ascendancy of Christian thought through these, these ages where you're building Western and transforming Western civilization. The external influences are paganism. The external influences are, are the, um, you know, you've got the Celtic warriors who are worshiping ancestors and you've got the Vikings who are worshiping the pantheons of, uh, of Thor and all of the others in the Marvel universe that are now being, coming transgendered and everything else. So you, you, they're, they're dealing with that and it is a challenge and it takes centuries to, embed into the culture Judeo-Christian ideas, values, and thinking. So what happens is, in this early period, you have men who are influenced by Neoplatonism uh, or rationalism, idealism, mysticism. These are all part of that mentality. You have people like Origen. Origen is considered a great church father. Uh, for a couple of things that he did, the most of which he did was wrong and was heretical. And he's the one who shifts from a literal interpretation to a spiritual interpretation. Now, why does he do that? I know this is going to take me two weeks to go through this. Origen said that the world under Platonism is composed of three things, okay, You have the physical, you have the soul, 
and you have the spiritual. In the same way, any text, any writing has three levels of meaning. The physical, which would be the literal, historical, grammatical meaning of the text. Okay? Then the next level is the soul. So you have that meaning. But the really good meaning is the spiritual meaning. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the literal, grammatical, historical meaning of the text. It is some. It, it just completely allegorizes it, and there's no objective qualifications. And he basically brings allegorical interpretation into Christianity, and it dominates until the Reformation. So you go back and you read the next person on there, Augustine, and a lot of people. In fact, I was reading a book dealing with a lot of these topics yesterday, but the guy is so reformed, it, it really bothers me in places. He's always quoting Augustine, and I'm going, you know, Augustine if you're Protestant, Augustine if you're Catholic. I went to a Catholic school for a master's degree, so I'm, I go back and forth. Um, so Augustine comes along, and he's extremely Neoplatonic. You know, the problem with this guy I was reading was that he thinks that the way he seems to express it is that the real problem comes with Aquinas. No, it doesn't. The real problem started with Origen and Augustine in the second and third centuries because they are compromising the integrity of Scripture with Neoplatonic rationalism. And that leads a church, and so, you know, you can trace Calvinism directly back to Augustine. Calvin went to an Augustinian school in Paris. Luther was an Augustinian monk. They were deeply influenced by these, you know, entrenched Neoplatonic ideas that were there. They got away from a lot of them, but not all of them. Okay, so you have origin, you have that, and then uh, what comes along here is you get into a uh, the missions movement. Now, I don't have time to really develop everything on the missions movement, but there's some fascinating stories here. You have the stories of of uh, Patrick, St. Patrick, Patrick of Ireland. Thomas Cahill came out with an excellent book, even though he's Roman Catholic, uh, and there are some problems because Patrick has been absorbed by the Catholics, but he was not a Roman Catholic. He was a Celtic Catholic. Okay, there's a difference. And uh, Patrick becomes the missionary, a missionary to Ireland after he's kidnapped by pirates and taken there. He comes back. He had been reared in a Christian home. And Cahill calls his book How the Irish Saved Civilization, and that's true. How did the Irish save civilization? Because when Patrick went back to Ireland and took the gospel to Ireland, it transformed the culture of Ireland. They built monasteries around Ireland. And then as it made its way to North Island, Ireland, you had missionaries that went across. And they founded, uh, under Columba, uh, they founded a, a, a monastery and a seminary for training uh, and sending out missionaries to England on the island of Iona which is an island off the coast between Northern Ireland and Scotland. And they're sending missionaries across to Scotland, and they're going south. What happens later on is they run into the problem of Roman Catholic missionaries coming up, and they have a clash, and the Roman Catholic theology w- wins out. But, but that's, um, that's what happens with Patrick. And you have 
uh, Ophilus, who takes the gospel up into the Scandinavian countries, takes two or three hundred years before the Scandinavian countries become really, really influenced by Christianity in terms of their culture. You have Boniface, who takes the gospel into uh, Germany. And you have many, many others that, that, that I can't even think of, but all of this is going on. And then in England, you have King Alfred. And um, I think when I was in the seventh grade, I bit off more than I could chew, and I read uh, Winston Churchill's four volumes on the history of the English-speaking peoples. And I didn't know why, but at the time, I, th- I remember being impacted by the fact that this guy, Alfred, a Saxon, was, was just unbelievable. He taught himself Hebrew. He got a rabbi to come and teach him Hebrew. Taught himself Hebrew, and he translated into Saxon parts of Exodus, parts of Deuteronomy, the Psalms, and the book of Acts. That was the first time that, that there was anything close to the language of the people that it was, was tran- translated. And the reason he did that was he understood that in the history of Israel, God gave them law. Law has an objective basis in God. And so the first thing he was translating was Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. But he translates the law, and he develops a legal system called the Dooms of Alfred. And Dooms was a Saxon word for law. And that is the foundation of English common law, which becomes the foundation for American law, for the thinking behind the founding documents. So you can't attack the Constitution and the Declaration unless you're dealing with it, with about um, about 1,300 years or about 1,000 years of the influence of biblical Christianity on English thinking in terms of ju- jurisprudence. So all of this is going on in this, this early period before 1,000. And around 1,100, you have the development of some of your monastic orders and the rise of the Dominicans. And I've got a couple of books with whole chapters on this, but the Dominicans are working out their their understanding of of the rights of the individual and property rights and where these rights come from. And some of the language that they developed uh, stays within Western civilization, stays within the Protestant church after the Reformation, and ends up in something called the Declaration of Independence. And people want to trace it back to John Locke, but John Locke didn't come up with that. It goes back into the 12th century and the 13th century in the Dominicans. So this is what built Western civilization. And it continues into the Reformation. The high watermark is at the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. It's called Protestant because they were protesting what the Roman Pope was doing. Now, another thing that happens along this same way is that by 400, the Roman, I'm the 4th century, 300, mid-300s, the Roman Empire is making homosexual activity illegal because it attacks the marriage and attacks family. See, 
as this as Christianity influences the Greco Roman world, they're realizing some things about about behavior and about ethics and about morality. So they begin to outlaw uh, homosexuality, and this becomes embedded within Roman Catholic thinking, which, of course, is the only Christianity until you get the Protestant Reformation in 1600. And that continues, and I'll get to this next time. I'll talk about the decline. This is the rise. We'll talk about the fall next week. And um, and you get a, a philosopher by the name of Jeremy Bentham, who is the he's openly hostile to God. He's an atheist. He rejects the Bible. Uh, he re- rejects any of legal theory that's based on on the Bible. And um, when you think about Blackstone's commentaries, he hated Blackstone. Blackstone's commentaries on English common law, every single founding father in America read that. It came out in the 1760s. And um, uh, Bentham just was totally against it, but he was also pro-homosexual. And he is in favor of, and he lays the groundwork. Homosexuality had not... I mean, it was practiced. I'm not saying it wasn't practiced, but it, you don't have anybody trying to bring it out of the shadows until Jeremy Bentham since the fourth century. That's amazing. That's the influence of Christianity. It changed how people thought about the divine institutions, about marriage and family, and it changed how they thought about government and about nations. Now, was there distortion and was there abuse? Of course there was because we're corrupt people and nobody's going to have a per- perfect government and a perfect country until then. But I'm going to fa- I want to fast forward a minute to where we are today. See, what made America great was Christianity what, because that's what made Western civilization great. That's what transformed the world at, uh, in the ancient world, in the early church, the ancient church, and the medieval church. It was transforming Western civilization. And then through missionary activity, it transforms the world. And it was through a clear understanding of the church and Christianity and that it all has to be Bible-based. And we live in a world today where most churches don't even know what it means to be Bible-based. I've been a pastor for 40 years. Now, I don't have a church office phone at home, so I don't get these kinds of calls anymore. But when I was a pastor in my first church and then my my second church where I pastored, I had a church phone on my desk, and so I would get all kinds of calls. And people would call and say, are you a Bible-teaching church? Yes. Oh, I just love to learn the Bible. I'll be And then they would show up and never come back. Because what they thought of as a Bible lesson wasn't a Bible lesson. It was this garbage that goes on that dominates the airwaves. I got a story from one of my favorite chaplains in the jail department, wrote me yesterday and said, I had to tell an inmate bad news today, and in doing so I told him he needs to get into a good Bible-based teaching church so he can know how to stand on God's promises and walk in truth through trials and tribulations motivational speaking doesn't do anything for you. Told his mom that I gave him a study Bible. He needs a good Bible-based teaching church. So this is what his mother said. 
thank you so much. We go to Lakewood. (laughs) So he is a member of a Bible-based church. Really? You know, if God was still striking people dead with the lightning for blasphemy, she'd be dead. She'd be a goner. We keep telling him he has to stop running from God. I hope God mentors him where, uh, mentors to him where he is. Um, anyway, that's why we're where we are. That's why we have that, that the church is now all about motivation and emotion. And we'll get into those details next time. But, but what, what's important to see here is the rise, uh, the rise of the church through the Middle Ages, and that there's this development of the principles of individual freedom, private property, the beginnings of a back-to-the-Bible movement with uh, John Wycliffe, who's translating the Bible into English in the 14th century, and Jan Hus in uh, Czechoslovakia, who's wanting to put the Bible into the language of the people, and then the Protestant Reformation. And the high-water mark of the Protestant Reformation was the English-speaking peoples. If you were to imagine in your mind, just picture a world map, draw a line between all the Christian countries and the non-Christian countries, you're pretty much going to take Europe and North America and South America are going to be Christian, and almost everything else is not except for Tonga, which is a Christian nation, and Zambia, which is a Christian nation. Everybody else is Muslim or pagan or Hindu or something. Okay, then look at that Western, that area influenced by Western civilization and separate that which was influenced only by Roman Catholicism, Spain, France, Italy, uh, the Balkans, uh, those areas, other areas east of there would be influenced by Eastern Orthodoxy. You draw a line there so that you have Germany as Protestant, uh, Holland, uh, the British-speaking countries, Scandinavia, they're all influenced by Protestantism. Then you take a line and you draw and separate the, the English-speaking peoples. They took the study of the Bible to heights no one else did in terms of its cultural impact on law and economics and literature and everything. That's not racism. That's biblicism. That's what made English-speaking people great was the Bible. And people who come along and want to make some comment about racism have distorted history. They're the products of a progressive education. Does it mean they were perfect? No. It does not mean they were perfect. But they were better than everybody else. That's why people want to come to America. That's why people wanted to go to England and be under that that kind of government is because they had freedom and they had liberty and they had prosperity. It wasn't perfect, but it was better than everybody else because they had a greater impact from the Bible. And the, the, the progressive thinking today, and we'll go through how that developed next time, Led to, has led to the fall. There are people today, I've been reading a number of different books, too many. Uh, there are people here around today who have already written the obituary for Western civilization. I think that's premature. But if nothing happens, if there's no change, a spiritual change and shift to the gospel, then it, the, these obituaries will come true. 
because what made Western civilization what it was was Christianity. Uh, the people who lived there in those areas originally were barbaric. All of them, they were doing human sacrifices. Uh, they were involved in uh, pantheism. They were worshiping Mother Earth. All of these horrible things were going on, and, and they practiced slavery and all kinds of things. It was the impact of Christianity that changed things. So we have to keep that in mind. That's what Paul's talking about here. And he is saying that we can't live like that. We can't think like that. We can't act like that as Christians. We have to stand against it. We have to tear down these strongholds. That's the battle today. And what this is going to do is lead us into understanding what and why it's so important to understand what he says about the spiritual life in the coming section. So we'll come back next time and look at the decline and fall of Western civilization and Christendom. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think about these things, to see in the laboratory of human history uh, the consequences of biblicism and the results when biblicism is compromised with the thinking of the world. Father, we know that there's only these two options. We think like the devil or we think like you. There's no other option. Father, we pray that if anyone here is not saved, that if they were to die today, tomorrow, the next day, if they don't know where they would go, the Bible is very clear that every one of us is born dead in our trespasses and sins. But if we trust in Christ, then at that instant, God makes us alive together with him, raises us with him, and seats us positionally with Christ at the right hand of the Father so that when we die physically, we are absent from the body and face-to-face with him. We don't do it by good works. We don't do it by achievement. We don't do it through morality. We don't do it through ritual. We do it by simply trusting in Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And so, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to anyone who needs to hear that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.